0: This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between one and five million dollars in earnings. For more information, please visit tractioncp.com. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. My guest on this episode is Tim Ludwig, managing partner of Ohana Capital in San Diego. Tim is a search fund investor through Ohana and has extensive experience, having invested in 75 deals over his career. More recently, Tim has been investing in companies directly rather than investing in searchers through a fund. During our conversation, we cover topics like being a search fund investor versus investing directly, the history of search funds and investing in them, the search fund climate today, and Tim's exciting and sometimes dangerous study abroad experiences in Colombia and Spain. Tim was in Portland on business and was kind enough to share part of his morning with me for this podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. So can you tell us a little bit about how you went from previous careers to now buying or investing in searchers and why you decided to invest in searchers versus buying the companies yourself? It's been a meandering road to get to this point.
1: Coming out of college, I started out as a management consultant, went back to grad school after a few years knowing that I wanted to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. That was in 1998, so the original internet bubble was still expanding, it hadn't yet blown up, and I was looking at all sorts of entrepreneurial things to do when I was in grad school, and somehow in that era, I stumbled across search funds, and the light bulb went off, and I thought, this is an amazing model, there's people out there that would actually fund somebody like me to go out and buy a business and run it, and I thought that was pretty incredible, I got pretty excited about it. I did whatever research I could at the time. It wasn't like today where you can just go to a website and dial it up and watch, you know, tens of hours of videos and get case studies. You actually had to mail things and send away for it. And so I did that. I I wrote to Harvard Business School, and I think there were three or four case studies at the time that they sent me. And then Irv Grausbeck, who is sort of the father of search funds, had relocated to Stanford. I wrote to his office. They sent me some more materials. And I was thinking seriously about raising a search fund at the time. I was at the University of Michigan, which was not the hub of search fund activity. It was still, at that time, largely Harvard and Stanford and a little bit of Wharton. Uh, and ultimately got sucked up into the Internet vortex and moved out to Seattle after grad school and joined a venture back startup. Uh, that, like many of the companies of that era, raised lots of money and then very quickly uh, imploded. Uh, and I spun out of there with my first entrepreneurial venture, bootstrapped a small online publishing company. So finally, uh, a couple years after grad school, got to fulfill that entrepreneurial itch and re- did that with a partner. It was modestly successful. I, you know, We were generating revenue. We'd identified a good market niche. But I don't think either of us really had our hearts fully into it, and it was a fairly small market. So around that time, I had gone down to San Diego to a friend's wedding, met a woman. We were getting more serious. My business partner at the time said, I'm thinking about going back to grad school. So the tea leaves were, were indicating that we were probably not going to run full steam ahead with the venture that we'd started. So we, we sold it off. I moved down to San Diego got involved in real estate for about the next next 6 years doing all sorts of things with uh, my wife's family and we had good timing this was 2001 to 2007 time frame so you know everything that we touched was turning to gold and it was just it was a lot of fun i was learning a new discipline and it was it was really exciting to have a physical product that we were working on all the time And that was a great run. And then the last couple of deals that I was involved in, it it was very apparent that we were headed towards a change in the market and that things were not going to be as rosy over the next few years as they had been for the the previous few years. So I had good timing and was able to get out of the real estate market and wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I ultimately decided that I was going to do a self-funded search started to ramp up those efforts and just go look for a small business to buy on my own. I'd been successful enough in real estate that I had a little bit of capital that I could, I could scrub together to use as a down payment on a business. And as I started to get more serious about that, I sat down with my wife and I said, would you be on board with this? I'm not sure that we're going to be able to stay in San Diego if I go down this path because I want to find a really good business and I don't want to be looking for ever to do that. So, bless her heart, she said, if that's what you really want to do, I will do it. But we just had our first child a few months before, and she was nesting, and her whole family was in San Diego. So there was a lot of inertia to stay put. And and so I said, before I commit us down this path, let me just take a pause and see if there's something else that I can think of that would keep us here that would allow me to still fulfill this ambition that I have of, of going out and owning a business. And as I was going through the list of possibilities... I remembered search funds uh, and I thought, oh, that's still a really novel idea. Maybe I could be an investor in search funds rather than an operator. That way I'd get to stay in San Diego, taking the amount of capital that I had, I'd get to spread it across a range of businesses instead of a single business. Uh, and I'm sort of a business junkie. I love learning about new businesses and the way people that have figured out to extract uh, you know, a living from what they're, what they're interested in. And it was a path towards me being able to learn a lot in a very short period of time. So I started to reach out to people in the search fund community. They were incredibly gracious. It's a super collaborative model. They welcomed me with open arms. And I had really good timing. This was early 2008 when the prospects for MBAs was not as healthy, healthy as it was a few years before that. And Stanford every other year publishes a research study that touts the returns across the asset class. And the results that year were extremely high, driven by a few large outcomes. And the New York Times started to gather some interest in the space and wrote a couple of of pieces about the search fund model. So there was this explosion of interest around the same time that I was walking onto the stage, which is good, because I had no relevant background, really, to the search fund model. I hadn't gone to one of those top business schools. I had never raised a search fund myself. I didn't come out of private equity. Uh, But I just had an interest in it, and I knew about the model. Um, So as I was pulling all that together, uh, I had a few friends and family say, hey, if you do this, we would love to contribute some capital. And some of the people on the investor side that I was speaking with said, here's some deal flow. And before I knew it, with very little effort, I was in business. Um, I started a small operation called Ohana Capital, raised a first fund of friends and family money and and hung out my shingle in 2008 and started to invest. And that's largely what I've been doing for the past 10 plus years now is staying active in that community. So it was really more driven by lifestyle than anything else.
0: So you, you didn't go through a analysis of what is my financial picture look like if I invest directly in the companies versus just investing in the search funds, it sounds like it was more of this, investing in search funds just gives you more flexibility and where you can live and gives you, is it, is it true that you don't have to do quite as much legwork if you're investing in the searchers who are going out to find the business versus going to find the business yourself? I'd say it's a different kind of legwork, but arguably, yes, that's
1: true. Uh, the a traditional private equity firm that does all of its own deal sourcing has all of that in house. This is more of a distributed model where the the backers of the searchers in that private equity field outsource to these to these ambitious MBAs all of the legwork of going out and identifying the company, negotiating it, structuring it, which is the lion's share of the work uh, from an hour standpoint.
0: So, is your day to day mostly focused on working with your existing portfolio companies through searchers and helping them operate businesses or is it you know pitching to new searchers or are they pitching to you in in the opposite direction it's more inbound in
1: terms of the deal flow generation so the community of investors in the search fund um, market is still pretty small there's a handful of dozens of them at this point and they're they're pretty easy to identify you can go to other search funders websites and see who their limited partners are and if you do that enough times you develop a pretty comprehensive roster and if you talk to other searchers, you can get their contact information pretty easily. So a lot of the, the, the deal flow from an investor's perspective tends to be inbound. You can go out and beat the bushes and go to business schools and talk to people and raise awareness even higher and generate deal flow that way. But it's not terribly necessary, I find. And then a lot of the rest of the day-to-day is evaluating searchers, helping them during the search and then after the search, whether it's in a board capacity or just as an informal advisor and investor about particular areas where you may have some expertise and relevancy.
0: Search funds have become much, much more popular over the last few years. Um, Has that impacted your ability to invest in search funds at all?
1: I'd say the growth has made it easier. I've actually reduced the frequency of investing in search funds that I've done over the past 10 years, over the past couple of years. But there's more search funds than ever. So to have an opportunity to put capital to work for an investor right now,
0: it's better than it's ever been. So the searchers are pitching to you as the investor, not the other way around, i.e. there's more... There's more supply of searchers than there is capital to invest in them or investors to invest. I think people are looking for a match,
1: ideally, and that's how it works in the best cases where a searcher or a, or a team of searchers is evaluating an investor or a group of investors, and the investors are likewise evaluating the searchers so that hopefully they find a connection there that will withstand a long duration of a relationship. I mean, a lot of times these go on for a decade or more.
0: What sorts of things do you look for in your searchers or characteristics are you seeking out? I think humility. Most of them in terms of just raw intellectual horsepower,
1: they have that in spades. Just, I think, self-selecting into the model. They have enough common sense and know-how and they're adept learners. So uh, charisma, I think, and some ability to sell or persuade, I think is vitally important. Uh, Work ethic is really important. Uh, Humility sense of curiosity. I think those are some of the
0: main ingredients. How do you know if a searcher is going to be a good operator? Do you know based on or do you look at their prior experience that they've had in operator capacities or if the searcher hasn't had any operating experience how do you evaluate whether they're going to be a good candidate for you? I don't know that I have I don't know that I
1: can do that. It's a really difficult thing to do. I don't know, yeah, I don't know that my predictive abilities about who's going to be a good operator are, are anything more than throwing darts at a board, right? And it also depends not just will they be a good operator, will they be a good operator for the business that they ultimately acquire? It could be that in a different situation they would be much better or much worse than what they actually end up being because of the fit between them and the market and the people and the company and the customers that they have. So you really need a lot of stars to align, but some people obviously are just generally better at it than others. And uh, you get two years, roughly, that's about the average time it takes for a searcher to find a business to oversee and watch and make your own determination about what kind of an operator you think they'll be. And and nobody's perfect. Everybody has gaps in their skill sets. And so it's also helpful to understand those so that maybe you can work with them or help them identify resources where they can fill in those gaps so that that you sort of bolster them in areas where they may need some more development. But... uh, a priori, being able to identify who's going to be a top-notch operator,
0: a lot of times is very difficult. Do most of the MBAs and searcher candidates you look at, do most of them have operating experience, or is this the baseline to have generally some experience in corporate environments, but not necessarily small business ownership and operation? Almost none have small business ownership and operation experience. They, They all have
1: work experience, I would say, but not even always leadership experience. Sometimes they'll have managed one or two or a handful of junior associates. Some people that come from more operating intensive roles will have had an opportunity to lead larger groups of people or people that come from a family business background, may have grown up around small business. But more and more, there's a real diversity of backgrounds and skill sets among searchers.
0: Can you walk us through some of the, the history of the search fund model, both as a searcher and an investor? I remember on our phone call, I asked you a little bit about it, and you had a, a great breakdown of the 20-year you know, history or so. Would you be able to share some of those points? Sure. Yeah, my experience doesn't go back
1: 20 years, so some of this is just what I've gathered, and it may not be entirely accurate. But I believe the first fund was raised in 1984, And that was a very successful search fund, ultimately. I think that one had a very long life and returned a significant multiple of capital to its investors. And from there, uh, for a long time, I think it it just was one or two new searchers a year, maybe not even every year, uh, largely driven by Irv Grausbeck, first at Harvard and then at Stanford who was very much a mentor to the initial searchers. Worked closely with them first as a professor and a student in that relationship. A lot of times then they would come on and become case writers after they'd graduated and wrote about small business issues or things that Irv was interested in. And from there they would move on to actually running a search fund. And then I think some people in those communities on the investor side started to be brought into those deals to be able to co-invest and participate. Maybe that started from day one. And it remained very much a very strong mentorship model where, where there was a lot of very close collaboration and connection between the LPs and the searcher. Then as the model started to expand and more searchers started to do this, the connection started to become, became a little bit harder to maintain. And I think over the past five or 10 years, that's been one of the themes is that investors' portfolios have grown very dramatically from at any given time having a small stable of search funds in their investment portfolio to some people now probably routinely have 40 or 50 or more and there's collectively people that have invested in over 100 search funds. So when your portfolio of of companies expands to that size, I think just by the virtue of the large number of investments that people have, it becomes harder to have oversight of those. Um, And so the searchers, I think, started to see more dispersion among the investor base. They weren't getting quite as close of a connection. There's also been a rise of a more institutional class of investor out there that have brought a lot of value to the community, but it's also changed it a little bit. They write larger checks. They have the ability, I think, to influence outcomes perhaps in some cases a bit more. Search funders come from a much broader array of schools than they used to. Um, and so the, they have, I think, less of the ingrained culture sometimes, uh, but there's also a lot more information available and there's a lot more searchers to connect with, so the information has also become easier to access. It, it's, a maturing, it's a maturing asset class. Which is, which is really exciting in a lot of ways. And there started to be permutations of that. There's groups that are accelerators out there now that are running cohorts of searchers under one umbrella. There's people that are seeking out single limited partner relationships. So they don't have a distributed investor base. It's a very concentrated investor base. There's people that are starting to specialize by geography a little bit more or by industry type. So there's really sort of been an explosion over the past Five or plus years of a lot of diversity within the model, which has been great. And then macro factors over the past, at least my investing time period, we've been in a long bull market. Um, credit is much more available now than it was when I started when we were in the depths of the recession. And uh, there, there's a lot more interest in software businesses and SaaS businesses than there used to be. Sellers are much more educated about the, the M&A marketplace than they ever have been. Technology tools have greatly impacted search funds and allowed uh, search funds and intermediaries to reach out to larger numbers of sellers than ever before. So the, the old situation where maybe you would run into an old retiring seller that had never been approached before is, is becoming uh, much harder to find than it used to be. I mean, if, if, if there's a, search a seller that hasn't been contacted by an intermediary or a prospective buyer at least once a week, if they have a good business, that would be surprising today, I think. So just, there's been a lot of change in the marketplace. In this, the lower middle market, which is how a lot of people define this, this range of businesses of sort of $1 to $3 million in EBITDA, has become a lot more liquid uh, over the past 10 years than it was before that. And so I think the level of competition for each deal has gone up over that period of time.
0: Yeah, how do you differentiate yourself when you're, you're, you're trying to contact and buy from owners who are getting, a call or, email once a week? How do you, make yourself look different? It's challenging. I
1: think, searchers can still differentiate based on the fact that they are buying a single business. It's not a portfolio play. They've got an experienced group of of investors behind them. They have a long-term mindset. There's no fund driving them to sell within a certain time period. And then they can also differentiate based on expertise. If they pick an industry sector and really decide to go deep in there, they can develop relationships. They can they can learn the ins and outs of the industry and and I think separate themselves from the crowd by knowing more about a particular buyer seller's business before they even approach them than, than in another buyer might.
0: Are searchers able to get proprietary deals or do they just need to knock on enough doors and differentiate themselves that way and and if they do do most owners respond to those advantages or are the vast majority of owners they just don't care they just want the largest check i think owners are individual people and they all
1: want different things to many of them, especially owners running bootstrap businesses that they founded and have led and have, have seen through really tough times and really great times, there is an emotional attachment both to the business that they built and to the people that work there or the customers that they serve, and so they don't want to just sell it to the highest bidder, although. Some people are just motivated by that, and that's what's important to them. Or other people, maybe there's a catalyst that's forcing them to sell uh, with some degree of urgency. And so the certainty of close becomes really important. Other people want to see, don't have a family member that they can have as a successor to them, and they see a bright, young, ambitious MBA as the child that they didn't have that loves their business. And so it's a very emotional sale, and so that, that helps in that case. So there's... There's probably as many different reasons about why people sell and who they sell to as there are business owners.
0: And you mentioned that there's a few searchers that have a single LP model. Along that spectrum of single LP to diversified investor base, where do you prefer to land with a searcher? Well, I don't have the balance sheet to be the single LP, so I can't land there.
1: I, I like to, ha- and I've only worked in the search fund community where there's a fairly distributed limited partner base, and I, I think that works well. It's what the model was founded on, and I think it continues to, to be a model and a structure that
0: works well for both investors and searchers. Yeah, I would imagine with the diversified base, you get just more experience. Exactly, right. right. Um, and are there some disadvantages that come with that that you don't get with the single LP model?
1: I think from the searcher perspective, there's always a question about will I be able to raise the capital, right? If, if everybody's writing smaller checks, will I have a gap? And if it's a strong deal, those gaps inevitably close. But the other the other disadvantage potentially is if your LP base is too large, you spend more time doing investor relations than you do the actual activity of searching or running a business.
0: Other than that, I can't really think of too many downsides. I'd imagine with a single LP, you're limited in that all your risk is concentrated in one investor from the searcher's perspective. Right. If you find a business that they don't like
1: and they say, no, we don't want to invest in this, you have to then go out and raise the capital with a fresh group of investors that don't know you as well.
0: That kind of leads to a a discussion around the search fund accelerators, Mm -hmm. which are becoming more popular. Is that a similar disadvantage with search fund accelerators and that an accelerator might be your only investor? And, or are there just investors behind the accelerator? I'm not familiar enough with, there's a few
1: accelerators I'm familiar with, but I'm not familiar enough with them to know how those deals get funded inside those entities. Some, it may be a deal-by-deal deal case where they pass the hat to their group of limited partners. Other cases, I, they raise funds, and it's probably at the discretion of the accelerator operators. And in that case, it probably is more similar to a single LP where you incur the same or similar types of risks.
0: Are there, uh, are there trends today in search fund investing that get you really excited or you've really been focusing on the last year or so? I think it's exciting to see how
1: many searchers there are out there now, just the growth in the model in general. There's this aging baby boomer demographic, many of whom are business owners, I think the statistics that I see thrown around is there's about 300,000 businesses in the size range that most search funders uh, target, and virtually all of those will turn over in the next 20 or 30 years. So there's there's a tsunami of m and opportunities that are out there, and the search fund asset class is still relatively small relative to the size of the opportunity. So I think it's just exciting to have more people being drawn into that marketplace because it creates more opportunities for those businesses to transact successfully and for those legacies to carry on to a new generation.
0: Yeah. How much do you see the, the baby boomer retirement wave in your day-to-day? Oh, all the
1: time, regularly. Yeah, that, that's a it's a significant portion of, of deal flow. Where, where I think it's less common is with technology and software based businesses where the ownership tends to be younger still.
0: And do you have a preference or any investment thesis on SaaS technology companies versus you know more blue collar home services type companies? The traditional
1: set of search fund criteria align very very well with SaaS businesses recurring revenue, lack of customer concentration, strong margins, growing markets, you know the list goes on and on, but it, it's a very tight fit. So all that's really attractive, but you're oftentimes competing in markets where there are other very well backed or well financially backed competitors with smart people running them or smart people backing them. The risk of technology obsolescence is high. Uh, the valuations tend to be much higher. So. If you buy into, in my case in particular, the valuation component of it, I think there's a lot of tremendous opportunities there and there's a lot of very niche marketplaces, or or software companies rather, that, that serve different marketplaces very successfully that are that are under the radar and they're never going to grow up to be Salesforce or Google or you know whatever other enterprise SaaS company you could name of a workday. Um, Constellation Brands does a lot of that kind of acquisition, or Vista Equity, maybe slightly larger, but same sort of model, and they've done that very well. And I think it proves the thesis that these are sustainable, enduring businesses with very strong underlying economics. Uh, but the valuations tend to be very, very rich. You're getting a lot of times into revenue multiples instead of cash flow or EBITDA multiples. And as long as those multiples hold, uh, I think people will continue to do well. And they've held for a long time, so there's probably no reason why they won't. But I think if, particularly if you come out of like a value investing background, uh, it can be hard to make sense of, of why people are paying what they are
0: for those companies. Have there been a few business models over your career that you've become familiar with and are, maybe not you specialize in them, but you look for searchers who are also interested in those types of companies? I think the search fund asset class in general
1: has historically focused on recurring revenue businesses. Initially, I think there was more of a mix between manufacturing and service with a little bit of technology. Now, I think there's very little manufacturing, a lot more service and a lot more technology or technology-enabled services. And so I think anybody that spends a lot of time in the asset class tends to develop pattern recognition around businesses in those areas. And the recurring portion, that operates on a continuum too. It could all be from long-term contracts, subscription revenue, or just highly repeating revenues
0: that, that all sort of resemble recurring type businesses. And switching gears to the investor side for you, what does your investor base look like at Ohana Capital today and have you raised multiple funds at this point? I've been involved in raising three funds but
1: Ohana Capital today is largely just me using my own capital and as I mentioned earlier I've, I've significantly slowed the pace of activity and that's allowed me to just use my own capital rather than going out to, to limited partners.
0: So the amount of your own maybe permanent capital has increased over the last, over your career generally. And so what does that give you the, the ability to do that having investors maybe made it harder to do? I don't know that it's done anything
1: differently. It's the funds that I was operating were very, very small, probably suboptimally small because the administrative burden fell on my shoulders rather than being able to outsource to a, a third party. And so again sort of come back to lifestyle the just not having to manage the investor portion of things is is more enjoyable to me. Although there's a lot of gratification that I get working with a group of investors that I've had and being able to deliver good results to them. that that's a nice external validation that the work I'm doing is meaningful beyond just me. but the the back office in particular, uh, was a part of the job that I have never really enjoyed, and so n- con- not continuing, ha- not having to continue to do that, has been a nice upside to using my own capital.
0: Switching only mainly to your own money has that been a pretty like a pretty easy, nice transition?
1: Yeah, yeah. There, it it was you know get to the point where you say, am I going to raise a new fund or am I going to not raise a new fund? And I just decided that the last moment when that would have been probably the right window to do that in that I was not going to do that.
0: Is this long activity just because you're using your own money and there's not a fund behind you? Or is it that it's become harder to find companies that are attractively valued? Part of it
1: is definitely driven by valuations. So in the current marketplace, I'm not abandoning the search fund asset class. I still have probably investments in 20 companies there. I've still got a handful of active search funds uh, that I'm involved with. I continue to back new searchers, but at a slower pace. But valuations have continued to rise, and so all else being equal, you would expect returns in those investments to be lower than earlier cohorts where the valuations were lower. I've been focused more of my time now on looking for opportunities directly. And so over the past couple of years, I've actually ended up starting a small business with a partner um, and then recently back in March bought a business with the same partner that was an operating business and a going concern that, that I found at a, what I thought was a, a good
0: multiple for a very solid business. Is that what you see yourself doing in the future? Is buying these companies directly and continuing the the trend of investing in searchers less or not? Maybe not at all.
1: I, I don't know. I know. I think it's they're probably different legs on a stool. So I, I like the search fund community. I've spent ten years of my life in that community. I love working with the searchers, and it's a great group of other investors. I don't think I would ever want to completely walk away from that. I like also owning these businesses and being able to be a little bit closer to the action uh, from an operating perspective and having a little bit more input into the way they evolve and if we're ever to exit when they exit and to whom and uh, so that it's a nice balance i like all of i like all of it and so it's i think i'll continue to just be opportunistic and where i find opportunities that make sense for me and where i'm excited about them that's where i'll direct my capital
0: like all else being equal is the direct investing, what kind of advantages does the direct invest investing have over being the search fund investor?
1: I think there's a lot of differences. One that was important to me was being able to, to really pick the the industry and the size of the company. So search fund investors or search funders usually look for businesses with at least a million and a half dollars of cash flow a year. And Investing on my own behalf, I can, go, I can go to a smaller size business than that where I still see a lot of potential. And the valuations in these smaller businesses in today's market make a lot more sense to me than the businesses that are somewhat larger. But I think that the activities really help one another, at least in my mind, when I'm out there searching for my own deals I'm essentially acting as a searcher and developing not only the skill set, but a lot of empathy and ability to then help other searchers when I'm acting as an investor in their funds. And Because I'm closer to the operations in these businesses, I'm not the acting CEO of of the businesses where I have a larger ownership share, Uh, but I, I see a lot more of the daily issues again that the searchers, once they become CEOs, have to face every single day. And so my, my currency of knowledge about all of those things, you know, how, what, how do you choose a payroll provider? or What's going on with insurance? Or what about different personnel issues that they might be facing? Like, like those are things now in the businesses that I own where I have a lot more transparency and I have to wrestle with some of those issues myself. And so when a searcher approaches me with those, I feel like the counsel I give
0: is maybe a little bit more grounded in more recent reality. Is that some experience that you wish you'd had when you first started investing in searchers, just to be more helpful to them or to empathize better? Well, when I first started investing, I I did have it pretty recently
1: because I'd just come out of that real estate environment where we were running real estate operating companies as well as doing real estate investing. And and it was a small business environment, so I, I felt like I was still pretty close to being an operator, but then that bled off pretty quickly. You know, and, and after a couple of years, I just I, because I hadn't been operating anything, I think uh, I, I lost touch with some of the things that operators have to deal
0: with on a daily basis. And today, in your your current searchers who have who own businesses at this point, how involved day to day are you with them? Is it more? I, am, I imagine it's more actively involved in the first maybe year or two, and then when you're in the years, you know, six, seven, eight maybe it tapers off more or not maybe I maybe I had that no, wrong it, not necessarily no it, really I
1: think the bigger distinction is whether or not I have a board seat or not um, and if there's a board seat involved then the level of activity is sustained throughout the ownership period of that business if I don't have a board seat largely it can be fairly passive unless there's some particular thing that comes up with the searcher slash CEO at that point where maybe my background or experience or network would be of value, but a lot of times it's the board that works most closely with the searcher.
0: Do you generally want a board seat? No, no. I, for some people,
1: it's more important to them, or they're writing checks that are large enough. Where and perhaps they have funds where there's a fiduciary responsibility, where they feel like they need to do that. But uh, I I try to only go where I feel like there's a very clear way that I can add value, and to not have any ego about it. There's a lot of really talented investors in the search fund community, oftentimes who are much better suited to serve on the board than I am. And as an investor, I want the strongest board that we can possibly assemble to be the
0: ones that are working on that investment. Yeah, how do you you assemble a board for a searcher that's going to be the most helpful to them? I think the
1: searcher is in the best position to evaluate that because they lead the diligence on the company. So they start to understand what the company needs. They also probably have the best knowledge of themselves and an idea of what they need as a leader and as a CEO. And then there's some external realities that factor in. For example, I mentioned before, somebody's writing a really large check. uh, There's a reasonable expectation that they should have a board seat. And so in that case, the searcher may not have a lot of discretion over that particular person joining their board, but the search fund investor community is filled with wonderful people, and there's, there's almost never a bad option out there. So you're, you're generally choosing between a host of very good options.
0: If somebody has extra capital that they want to invest, and in, the public markets aren't necessarily as interesting to them, and they like the search space, What's a good way for them to start the process of becoming a search fund investor? What does that timeline or process look like for them?
1: There's probably two ways to do that thoughtfully. One, you have to have enough capital that's discretionary to be able to just go out and invest on your own, and that probably is an amount in the millions of dollars to build enough diversification to to mitigate some of the risks that you take on investing in these small, illiquid investments the other way would be to search out probably one of one of the funds that have that have popped up wait for them to raise a new fund and then and then go to them and express interest in becoming a limited partner in what they're doing and then a third way i suppose where maybe you do take on a little bit more risk is just start to plug into the community get to know those people and then very selectively make a handful of investments and just acknowledge the fact that you're probably going to be overly concentrated in a few of them and then ride those out if your capital doesn't allow you to continue
0: investing and hopefully have good outcomes and then recycle the capital have you had a few of your earliest searchers exit at this point oh yeah no lots of exits how have those turned out have they been pretty positive yeah overall very positive yeah the returns from the search fund asset
1: class and anybody can go online and look at stanford's biannual report are, are phenomenal. I mean, it's, it delivers really attractive returns, not without risk and certainly not without illiquidity. But uh, overall, I think it's a, it's a healthy asset class. You're taking small businesses with strong cash flows, applying a bit of leverage. And as long as, uh, as long as nothing really goes wrong, even if you just
0: pay off the debt, you'll generate a sufficient return to, I think, justify the exercise. I think you mentioned a little bit of this earlier, but how are you seeing larger private equity firms enter the search fund space? And is that creating more competition? Or are there just so many searchers that it's still not as big of an issue at this point?
1: Probably more competition at the margin, but the the private equity firms that are entering the space are not private equity firms, at least that I'm aware of, that are doing a lot of investing outside of search funds. So they're very specialized. They're, they're funds and, and companies that are formed specifically to invest only in search funds and the resulting acquisitions. And so the, the fund sizes relative to what most people would think of as the private equity firm universe are still modest. I mean, it's still tens or you know into the hundreds of millions of dollars at this point, but still small. There's not billion dollar funds being raised to invest in search funds today. So, and and like I said before, every deal is a syndicate, it tends to be a very collaborative environment. So, and the searchers themselves don't, in many cases, don't want a super concentration of their investor base. So, those funds that specialize in investing in search funds may buy at most maybe 20 or 30% of a searcher's available units in their search fund. And so it's not even a majority share. So there's still plenty of opportunity for other seats to be filled by individual investors.
0: Do you think some firms will find a way through quant strategies or better technology to invest in companies that of this small size and sort of arbitrage that multiple advantage away? I don't know if you can arbitrage the multiple advantage away. Multiple,
1: I, I suppose, if if you're talking about an increase in the level of activity will we see multiples rise they already have risen whether or not that's systemic or just related to the bull market in general i don't know parts of the model are already moving in that direction to be more quant-like i think and there's available databases of businesses that people are drawing on i mean a search funder now has an incredible ability to reach out in a very automated fashion to a large number of businesses that wasn't possible even five years ago, right? And maybe maybe five or 10 years ago, a searcher would think, throughout the course of a two-year search, I will contact 2,000 business owners of which I will have meetings with X percent and I'll get to a letter of intent with Y percent and I will close on one deal. Now, that might be 10X, because you can automate these email streams, you can hire a team of interns to do the research and pull together the contact lists, and there's the availability of the data that wasn't there before. So that, that's sort of just the first layer. I think you would, in if you really wanted to make this a quant exercise, you'd need to go deeper and figure out ways to develop proxies for revenue and and margins and health of things and do industry analysis and create a database of that that all feeds together and ties in and, and really makes, it a, a mathematical exercise, and that would still probably only carry you so far, but if you invested in enough of those businesses just based on the numbers, you would probably still do okay. But again, you ultimately, this is going to come down to people, and you have to convince the sellers that they should sell to you. And I, I'm not sure how many of these small business owners would sell to a quant fund that doesn't have really, at least from
0: an outward appearance, any emotional connection to what they're doing what kind of tools are you are you seeing being used to gather data quicker the
1: databases out there like capital IQ or Hoover's or um, other ones that collect small company data uh, is one way I think um, uh, Probably the biggest change that I've seen over the past handful of years is in the ability to reach out to those businesses once you've collected the information rather than having to go in one by one and create emails and then remember to follow up three days later or a week later and then place a phone call in or things like that. There's, there's email automation software out there now that allows you to build those sequences and, and have it be very automated where you can say, I'm going to run seven emails over a two-week period, and it's all going to happen without a single keystroke for me unless somebody replies, in which case then I sort of manage by the replies by exception, and, and that's how I'm going to reel the fish in. And so that allows you to load in 1,000 contacts and and email those people every day for as many times as you want over the
0: period of time that you want. I mean, you can you can literally flood people's mailboxes with very little effort. What are the success rates for cold emails? What do those percentages look like? So of the 2,000, 5,000 companies that are emailed on that list, roughly how many reply or how many are successful? Depends on the person crafting the campaigns. And I think this is true in business cold emailing
1: generally. And I think over, over time, I think the response rates have gone down. When it was a novelty, uh, there was a book called Predictive Revenue that I think kicked off this, this latest surge. It was written by a guy named Aaron Ross who came out of Salesforce, who seems to me like the pioneer of this cold emailing approach. Um, but I think he, even some of my early campaigns, I would get response rates of 50%. Um, that was exceptionally high. I think a much more normal response rate if it's a well-crafted email campaign, it's probably somewhere in the 10 to 20 percent range.
0: Wow, that's pretty high.
1: It is high. I was yeah. thinking like
0: one, maybe two percent.
1: No, you can you can do much higher than that. It's not it's not just a you're highly targeted. You're appealing to a CEO or a business owner. You've got a, a very compelling pitch, right? That hey, I'm interested in your business and I'm, I might want to buy it. I think that's a pretty that's a pretty compelling thing to try and reach out to somebody about as opposed to. I'm, I'm selling XYZ widget and there's 50 other competitors out there. Those are the kinds that are very easy to quickly just hit delete. Uh, but even, even though the number of inbound emails that owners receive from potential buyers or intermediaries has gone up, it's still not as high as lots of other kinds of business emails that, that people are receiving.
0: So how do you make a, a well-crafted cold email to an owner? I don't certainly have a monopoly on how to do this. I think what's worked best for me
1: is to try and really put my shoes myself in the shoes of the business owner and talk to them about things that are meaningful to them. And that's in contrast to reaching out to them, telling them about me. So, you know, I'm not going to reach out to them and say, here's three paragraphs on me and my background and why I'm so great. And I think you should have a conversation with me. I'm going to reach out to them and appeal to what I think might be issues or problems that they're facing that I, as an investor, might be able to help them address.
0: Is there some way to customize an email based on the industry it's in? So you send a specific one for every landscaping company, and then manufacturing a different type Absolutely. of email?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You can get very nuanced. And you can do, if you, if you want to take the effort and develop little snippets of, of really customized information that you want to insert into emails, it just becomes a cell in a spreadsheet that then has a header tag on it that you can then pull in as a variable to the email program. And it could be a single word. It could be a paragraph. It could be a sentence it could be related to a conference that you just attended where they were presenting or exhibiting that were maybe you connected with one of their people or you about a blog post that you read and all of that could be just a field in a spreadsheet that then gets pulled in as a variable to a customized email
0: so of the of the 10 to 20% of emails that come through how many of those usually follow on to a conversation
1: uh, yeah 20 to 50%, depending on what industry you're in and how targeted it is and how compelling your pitch is. I mean, a lot of it is is no thank you. But a lot of people, even just to have the tires kicked, will say, yeah, let's have a conversation. And it might only last 15 or 20 minutes, but, you know, it's a conversation. And then you start to build a relationship. And even if the time is not right now... It could, If you're a searcher, it still could be within the time frame of your search that maybe they decide to sell. And there are pr- private equity firms, Summit and TA Associates are probably the most well-known, that have very active direct sourcing programs. And one of the things that they have as an advantage that searchers don't is that they develop the same, same process largely, but they can maintain those relationships infinitely in duration. And so if a business owner says, great to meet you, Summit or TA, Uh, I'm not ready to sell today, they can track that and and continue to reach out to that person over 5, 10 plus years until the person is finally at the point where they say, yeah, I'm thinking of selling now. Whereas a searcher has typically a two-year
0: window. Yeah, it must be quite the advantage. Mm -hmm. And then they just, they plug in a CEO or a, do they go find a searcher and say, hey, we, I know you want to do a search and do this on your own, but we have this business. Do you want to come run it? Now, the businesses they
1: target are typically much larger, and they've got established management teams in place. And oftentimes, those businesses are not even founder-run, and so it's professional management at that point. So they don't have to do deal with CEO succession or turnover quite as much as a search fund would.
0: Have you met some searchers who they they want to buy one business, but they want to have they want to build their own portfolio of businesses? And is that something that if you like them, you're willing to help them do that or how, have you had that happen to a searcher?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think what I've seen most frequently is a searcher or, or a team of searchers, because sometimes there, there are two of them, will go out and express an interest, even at the outset, saying, you know, long term, what I want to do is I want to be uh, to own a portfolio of these companies. and But I really like operating, so I want to operate a business, and I need more experience there, so I'm going to do a search fund, and I'm going to try and generate a great outcome for myself and my investors. And then see what phase two looks like. And so what I've seen is that people go out, they, they do that, they buy a business through the search fund model, they run it, they grow it, they have a successful exit. Now they've got more capital than they had at the beginning and a, a good track record with a group of investors who also have capital. And then they can go out and start to execute on that plan and and. Try and build a portfolio of companies where they're still probably fairly actively involved, but oftentimes not the full-time CEO any longer. Would you help them with those other
0: investments as well?
1: Help them in the sense of writing a check, yes. But yeah. a lot of times the, at that point, you know, they've they're tremendously experienced already. You know, they're good operators, they're good investors. They've got a, a toolkit that is is pretty strong. And so what they really need at that point is, you know, I think still a sounding board. Everybody likes to have smart people around them to help. Help clarify their thinking and and stress test their judgments. But a lot of times they just need to have the capital to execute on their plan.
0: Does every searcher have to exit their investment just as a result of the capital structure they have? Or are there often clauses where, or parts of a contract that say, that the searcher can buy out an investor's interest over the life of the investment? I, I, don't, I haven't seen clauses like that, but there's no predefined
1: hold period for a search fund investment. So they could theoretically hold it forever. Uh, I think investors might start to get antsy and they might look for ways to create options for liquidity. So you might recap the business um, and allow people to exit that's happened in, in some cases, or there'll be a rights offering where somebody says, if you'd like to tender your shares at this price, or you know, create sort of a mini auction model to set the price, then we have some excess capital and we will selectively buy people out on an as available basis. Um, a lot of times, though, the decision to exit or monetize some of the value that's been created is driven by the searchers. A lot of times when they start their search fund effort, they're relatively young, you know, late 20s, early 30s, Relatively unencumbered. They don't have mortgages. They don't have families. They don't have, you know, children and things like that. And they also don't have a lot of net worth. As they're successful in their endeavor to build their business, they all of a sudden have net worth, but it's highly concentrated and highly illiquid. And oftentimes they're moving into a different phase in their lives where they have a mortgage and they have a family and they want to provide some security and take some chips off the table. And they will oftentimes approach their board and say, Let's have a discussion about how, how we can create some liquidity for us here. And there's
0: a number of ways that they can do that. If you could go to college and teach a class on literally any subject you wanted that was just interesting to you, what class would you teach? I think I would probably want to teach effective communication. And
1: the, the components of that are both listening and communicating. I, I think great listening is almost a superpower. It allows you to relate and connect to people. It allows you to learn very quickly. And then being able to communicate back in an effective way is, is its own superpower as well. I think being able to articulate things in a way that other people hear in the way that they're intended without raising emotions to a way that they start to interfere is really helpful. I, I mean, it's an area where I've spent a lot of time trying to develop my own toolkit over the past few years. I feel like I've still got a long road ahead, but um, the, the mind there is really deep and rich.
0: How do you think you would organize the class?
1: Probably try and find texts that I think are highly relevant uh, that, would, that would be sort of the cornerstone of the, the teaching, and then try and develop some experiential exercises built around the themes in those texts. So I finished reading a book recently called Nonviolent Communication, uh, which is sort of a funny name, but it, 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 when you read it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's really talking about how to communicate with people in a, what, he, what the author calls a nonviolent way, which is a way that really respects them as, as individuals and also respects your own feeling. There's another book that I read that's much more business-oriented called Radical Candor. Uh, that came out maybe a year or two ago, developed by a woman who had done a lot of leadership training at, at Apple and some of the other Silicon Valley companies about how to communicate transparently and candidly, but but also with compassion. So a lot of times in business, you have to deliver tough news. And I think there's definitely an art to doing that in a way that that respects other people as human beings. Uh, another book that I would probably add to the syllabus would be Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference. I don't know if you've heard of that one. He's uh, the former head of the FBI's hostage negotiation team. And in business school, we read um, some negotiation books, Getting to Yes probably being the most well-known. And he sort of turns a lot of the learnings there on their heads. And he was in an environment operating where if you failed, people died. All right, So the stakes couldn't be higher. And he and his team had to figure out what really worked in high-stakes negotiations. And it's just another form of communicating, right, and, and reading the situation there to communicate effectively
0: in, in a situation where the outcomes can be really high. What's the most fortunate event that happened to you that was completely random?
1: Winning the genetic lottery, I think being born to U.S. citizens in you know, our modern era is probably the most fortunate, ran, really random thing that, that I could think of. Everything else has sort of flowed from that. And, and having spent a fair amount of, uh, tra- of time traveling and just seeing the differences that the circumstance of your birth can create in the outcome of your life, I mean, there, there probably is no more truly random event that has a large impact on my life, and I feel like I've been super fortunate. Um, the backup answer would be uh, meeting my wife at, at um, her brother's wedding.
0: Where have you gotten to travel?
1: So I started uh, doing some international travel when I was in high school. I spent a summer living in Spain as an exchange student. Then in college, I spent a year living in Bogota, Colombia with a family. I spent my sophomore year abroad. And then I, at one point I did some backpacking around Southeast Asia. And then uh, since I've been married with my wife, we've uh, traveled to Central America and Europe and Asia. And um, my wife and her family are avid, avid travelers. So every opportunity she gets, she drags us all over God's creation.
0: Do you have a few notable stories from your travel? Because that's a lot of different, very different places that you've gotten to visit.
1: Yeah, uh, Um probably are like lots of stories from travel i think that's one of the great benefits of travel is you come home with stories in addition to memories and sometimes souvenirs but um, my favorite travel experiences have been those more deep immersion situations where i i go and actually feel like i actually live someplace or feel like i'm living someplace and really get to feel and wrap the culture around you
0: where did you feel like you were most enveloped in the culture
1: Colombia, because that was where I spent the most amount of time, and that was during the era where Pablo Escobar was still alive. And the year that I lived there, it was 90, 1992, 1993. Um, so he had was in prison, and then he escaped from prison, and there was still a lot of violence on the streets, and he was basically at war with the government during the period that I was there. And so there were car bombs and witness killings and kidnappings and judicial kidnappings and killings and there was guerrilla activity and I mean there was a lot of turmoil in that country at the time and uh, almost no foreign presence Uh, and so it felt authentic I guess in a way you know there were there weren't McDonald's and Burger Kings on every corner there were very few other Americans Traveling in the country at any given time, uh, and the people were just so gracious and warm and wonderful. Uh, so it was just this really rich tapestry and uh, of contrast between the violence and the social upheaval there, with the deep traditional cultures that they have that were centered around families and friendships and music and enjoying yourself. And um, it was just it was incredible.
0: Is there a moment or a, a memory that sticks out the most? From your time in Colombia,
1: no, not a single memory. Uh, one one anecdotal story that touches on sort of the narco trafficking activity that was just sort of a unique experience there that I, I don't think I would ever want to recreate. But there was uh, an area of nightclubs in Bogota, and I went up to one of these nightclubs with some friends one night, and we were we were having a good time dancing and drinking, and. All of a sudden, the music stopped, and the DJ got on the microphone and said, uh, in essence, good news, bad news. Good news is is that your tab has been paid for the rest of the night. Bad news is nobody's allowed to leave until we say so. And then they turned the music back on and sort of word trickled through the club that what had happened is that one of these narco traffickers had come in and basically taken over the club and for security purposes said, nobody leaves until, until I've left. Uh, but... I'll cover the tab for the whole the whole place. He wanted to make sure that nobody else came in that he didn't know was already there. It was this. It was a purely security type thing, I would guess. I mean, I didn't talk to him, but I think you know, just making sure that that he probably had people at the door to make sure that nobody left and nobody came in, um, and maybe trusted that people that were already in there were not people that he was going to be concerned about. I took the bus a lot then, and be routinely riding around the bus, and you see these narco-traffickers, they all drove Toyota Land Cruisers with blacked-out windows a lot of times, and the people driving them didn't look like people that would be driving fancy cars. But there was, you know, driving around looking at the buses, and there'd be submachine guns in these people's laps, or, you know, you'd see but be driving around in a taxi or something, and there'd be a big hole in the ground where a car bomb had gone off, or streets would be closed off because of things. But where, where I probably felt it the most, although it wasn't like a scary experience, was just in the Restrictions on travel. Traveling by car outside of Bogota was was really frowned upon, and it wasn't so much even because of the narco traffickers. It was more because of the guerrilla groups. They would set up checkpoints, um, and and then either kidnap people and hold them for ransom, or sometimes just kill them uh, if you know they found somebody that they didn't like. And there was and, and Americans because they thought we had money, and we were also supporting the people that were fighting the drug traffickers and the guerrilla groups were, were not generally well liked by those groups so we were high value targets I think in the eyes of a lot of those people so we you know we got lots of warnings about be very very careful about where you go and who you're with and there was one story about an American college student that was down there that it was a woman she was driving with some Colombian friends and they were headed just to a small town not too far outside of, of Bogota and there was one of these checkpoints and the driver said we can't stop there's no way we can stop um because i'm afraid they're going to kidnap you or rape you or do something terrible to you and so they they blew through this checkpoint um and they got shot at you know and shot back of the window shot out and i think maybe one of the people in the car got hit with a bullet and um I mean, it was it was serious, but Bogota was also at the time a city of 8 million people and it was sort of like New York City probably in the 70s when there was a lot of violence. As long as you knew where to go and where not to go and what time of day you could be certain places, like it was a very safe city. I never felt really under threat, even in that nightclub story. Like That it didn't feel particularly scary. It wasn't ideal, but I didn't feel like somebody was going to come and kill me. When I was... Um, I, you're going to think I live a life of danger as a traveler, but I really don't. Most of the places I go are extremely safe. But when I was a senior in high school, um, I got 15 friends together and we rented two houses in Jamaica. And God knows why our parents let us go down there with unattended, but they did. Um, or to Columbia. Or to Columbia, right. Um, at least then I was in college. Just, you know, I was a 17-year-old high school student with 15 other high school boys renting two houses in Jamaica. While we were there, we got shot at and held up at gunpoint. Of course, we were such easy targets for these people, right, and, and so naive. The gunfight thing, we just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. We were walking through a place where I think a couple rival gangs were just a couple blocks off of a tourist area. And they were sort of across the street, like the Old West, like shooting bullets at each other. And we were like ducking and dodging to get the hell out of there and get back to safety. We just sort of stumbled into the wrong, wrong block. Um, and then getting held up was more our fault. We met these Rastas and they're like, oh, we're going to have a party on the beach tonight. You guys should come down there. It'll be a lot of fun. You'll be drinking and weed and music. And we we're like, that sounds awesome. That's, you know, we're totally into that. So we all go down there and uh, we find him on the beach. He told us where they're going to be. And then they, they, the, we were in a minivan. The minivan drives off and the Rasta comes up. And he's like, oh, great. Glad you guys have come. Give me all your money. We're like, what the hell are you talking about? And he lifted up his shirt, and there's like a gun sticking there. We're like, oh, this is serious. And so we like, hand over all our money, and, uh, and then we got the hell out of there as fast as we could. And there was a guy that had befriended us, one of these minibus drivers. His name was Shinehead. That's what he called himself. So we actually found him, and he's like, you know, what, why are you guys so distraught? What happened? said so we just got held up, and um, God bless him. He drove down to this beach w- without us, talked to all these guys, and got about half of our money back.
0: How was your time in Spain? What did you do there? Time in Spain was
1: really good. I lived with a the family, they, and they, they were pretty well-to-do. So they had an apartment in Madrid, and then they had a beach house in a town called Alicante on the coast in the south, and then they had an old family home in a, in a little tiny, tiny village called Guadamur, which is just south of Toledo, um, which is an old medieval town in Spain. And so we spent a couple of weeks in Madrid. I was, I was there for nine weeks, I think. And I was a, just finished my sophomore year in high school, so 16, I guess. And I'd never done any traveling before that. So this was a, a big departure. And it felt so foreign to me. I mean, uh, um, the food in particular was so, hard. and my Spanish was not terribly good. I'd taken Latin in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade and switched to Spanish. Oh, no, in seventh and eighth grade and switched to Spanish in ninth grade and then in 10th grade took spanish again and then went on this exchange program and so i lived with this family and um, in madrid it was i just remember it being really hot and we played a lot of soccer and then on the beach it, they had the whole month of august off so we spent that was where we spent most time we spent probably 4 or 5 weeks in this little town and we would get up in the day and go down to the beach and lie in the sun and play in the play in the water for 12 hours and then um, stay up till two or three in the morning out on the beach hanging out with people and um, and then we went to this little tiny town and um, they had a little farm there where they grew figs and we just toured the sites for a week or so and and then I came home but it was it was the homestay experience was I found it really challenging I felt homesick I felt really uncomfortable it felt really foreign I felt stressed out because I didn't want to do something that was offensive to them and there was a communication barrier so it was it was a it was a big growing experience and most of it was fun but there were parts of it that felt pretty intimidating
0: what's the what's the
1: best business you've ever seen two answers to that, that, with the initial caveat that there's lots of businesses that I love, because I mentioned before, I'm sort of a business junkie. But because we're in Oregon, there, there was a business, I'll, I'll give an Oregon business story. There is a business in Oregon um, called Random Lengths that is a price reporter for dimensional lumber throughout North America. So dimensional lumber is like what you'd go and find and buy at a lumber yard, a 2x4 that's 8 feet long or a 2x6 that's 12 feet long. That's dimensional lumber. And it gets traded actively. There's a very active trading market for lumber and and other other building materials. But um, Random Links was started a couple generations ago. I think it just sold finally, and now it's no longer under the same family's ownership. But they became the price reporter, so sort of like the the Dow Jones for dimensional lumber pricing, and people started to refer to pricing of lumber as Random Links plus or minus because every week they would come out and say, "Here's the price of all these lumber categories," and so it effectively had a monopoly, and and it became one of these iconic almost like a Kleenex or a Jell-O, right? Like when you talk about lumber pricing, you talk about random links. Um, and so just from a pure economic standpoint and sort of dominance as an industry, it's not a large company, but the impact it had on, on a very large industry was tremendous. So that's my Oregon business story. And then my other favorite business was, uh, Partly based out of just personal interest, I, I love being outdoors and spending time in in, in the wilderness. It, it would be Patagonia, like that's a business that I, I wish I had started. You know, it's a business that I think has built an iconic brand that has exceptionally high quality products that has endured for decades now that has a positive impact on not only the environment, but I think on business, some of a lot of things that they've done in retailing and in clothing manufacturing around sustainability and recycling of products has been has been groundbreaking and I think has co- have caused other players to follow suit. And it just seems like it would have been a tremendously good time to have been the founder of that company.
0: Thank you for joining me this morning. I'd, I'd love, to, love to our conversation. I'm looking forward to another one soon. Yeah, likewise, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.